Amen. Well, um, as, I've, as I've just prayed, uh, we're about to start a brand new series. It's going to carry us on from, from today all the way up through the beginning of Advent, so the end of the year. And the series is going to be in Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. Um, it's, it's a letter that I've kind of been itching to get to since we started Trinity, which is, believe it or not, coming up on three years this fall. The reason that I've been itching to get to it, the reason it's a place that a lot of times you start out when you, when you begin a church, is that it's all about the church. It's really, I don't know that I'm, that I'm overstating it, to say that it is the New Testament's most clear and most in-depth and most comprehensive look at what a local church should be like. Now, here's the reason it's so useful. There's one way to get at what the local church should, should be like, a sort of positive portrait of it. It's the kind of portrait that you might get if you go buy a, a book at a Christian bookstore about the church. But I think we all know from experience that, that oftentimes the best way to, to understand a message and grab hold of it is not a positive vision for it. It's the, it might be abstract, but to sort of learn from the mistakes of ourselves or from other people. 1 Corinthians is written to a church that was dysfunctional to the core. It's written as a way to warn us against the mistakes of others. And so that, for that reason, it's, it's deeply and, and fully practical. It helps us to grab on to what church should be by learning from what it wasn't in this time and place. It's also really encouraging, as a leader of a church, to see that Paul, the great apostle, planted a church that was about to fail. I don't know why I get so much comfort out of that, but it certainly puts, it puts in perspective all the things that I wish were different about my own ministry, and, and it, it reminds us what Paul's always trying to do here is sort of take himself out of the picture, his role as the planter or the founder of this church, and point the church back to Jesus. What, the, what this letter really is, is Paul taking one issue after another that had come to him in reports from people from the church who'd come to see him or in letters that had made their way to him. One issue after another, he takes the issues and he drives them through the issues to the cross to reframe everything about what they're experiencing. And we're going to follow him there. What we're doing with this letter is looking at how the cross of Jesus is meant to shape the way we treat each other at church. Their church was divided over leadership. People wanting to claim that I'm with this guy or I'm with this guy as a way to make themselves look better. It was divided because people were so committed to their own rights, to getting what they thought they deserved, that they were taking each other to court. A church that was so focused on self-advancement that even when they're in their practice of the Lord's Supper, of communion, this thing that's supposed to unite us around what Jesus has done, they were divided between those who were wealthy and brought their own food and spread out a feast that they ate and those who had nothing and who were left nothing by the wealthy. It's a church that was divided even by the gifts that God had given to them. Even in these spiritual gifts, like some, some that are kind of unknown to us, gifts of prophecy, or in some cases, gift of tongues, they were using them not to encourage each other, but to, for some sort of one-upmanship over each other, to prove that, that I'm better than you because I have this gift and you, you have a lower gift. Basically, it was a church full of people who were all about themselves. And for Paul, that meant they were a church of people who hadn't understood what the cross was all about. And his goal here, and our goal over the next few months, is to dig really deep on what it looks like for the cross of Jesus to shape a community. Now, we're going to get straight into it this morning. 
We are going to take a, a sort of bird's eye view on the letter this morning, but we're going to do that through a specific passage, through the way that Paul opens his letter. Because even though Paul opens his letter in a, in a really standard way, with some of the same things that opened all letters back in the ancient times, he tweaks them. And every time he uses one of these standard elements, he, he spins it just a little bit to his own purposes. And it's in his changes to what comes natural in the openings of letters that we get insight into what's coming in the rest of the letter. Really, the first nine verses of his letter point us ahead to everything else that's coming. And so what I want to do is use his greeting, unpack it together, the first nine verses of chapter one, as a way of looking ahead to what we're going to unpack together over the next several months. So, we're going to read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. And in honor of God's word, I'm going to ask you to please stand with me as we read together. Begin reading in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the Word of God. You can be seated. I've said that that the greeting points us ahead to what's coming in the letter and, and that what's coming in the letter is Paul's picture of what a cross-centered church should look like. What marks a true and healthy and thriving congregation. And I want to use this greeting to point to three things that this letter is about. Another way to say it, I guess, would be three things that mark a church that's healthy and focused on the gospel. And the first of these three things, which comes out in verse 2, is holiness. 1 Corinthians is about holiness. Now, this is a word that can be really hard to define. Um, we looked at it, actually, in, this, in our last preaching series, which is on Isaiah, because Isaiah has got the, the word holy all through it, and especially used for God. And what we talked about there was that holy is really a word for describing godness, anything that's not normal. To be holy is to be God. To be God is to be holy. To be holy is to be holy. It's one of these words that's just hard to define by anything outside of itself. I think we can take a crack at it. And that, and that really, we, it gets us a lot down the road to say that to be holy is to be not normal. To be set apart from what's normal. Of God, it means everything that makes him not like us. And of us, holy refers to our being set apart to God or for God. Changed by him from what comes natural to us changed from what's natural in our environment. And that's essentially what the church is called out to be, to be a sort of pilot project for the new world that God is bringing in, to be a community that doesn't look like the rest of the world. And this is precisely what was missing in the church in Corinth. You can tell this is where Paul's going to go because of the way he identifies 
his, his readers in verse 2. Verse 2 says, I'm writing to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What we see here is that they're in Corinth, right? But they're sanctified, made holy, set apart from Corinth. I think to get at what the major theme of holiness is going to take us to, we need to park on this sentence as simple as it is and understand something about what Paul knew in his mind when he wrote that they were in Corinth, what, the, what associations that had for him, and what it would mean, therefore, to be out of Corinth, to be sanctified, to be taken out of what's normal there and placed into a new normal. Because that's what this verse is saying. The church in Corinth sanctified or made holy in Jesus. I want to unpack this for just a couple minutes. I want to talk about the in Corinth part. I think you've got to know a little bit about what Corinth was like to know what, what was normal. And then we'll talk about what it would look like for them to be set apart from Corinth, to be holy. And in doing that, I think we're going to get a, we're going to get a great taste of what's coming. So first, first, let me talk a little bit about what's, what Paul would have known when he said this church, when he addressed himself to this church in Corinth. It was a major city at the time major cultural and, and uh, sort of business city. Um, and I think to understand a lot of the issues that this church was having, we need to understand something about the history and the culture of Corinth. Um, it is remarkable to me, based on, based on some reading this week about just, just what it was like in this era, how similar it is to our own context. Normally, we think about the ancient world as being really, really different from anything like the modern world. And in most cases, that's true. But in Corinth, it's, it's much less true than it normally is. I'll, I'll say a bit more about what I mean on that. This, this city had been destroyed a, hundred, a couple hundred years before Paul wrote this letter because they had rebelled against the Roman Empire. They were resisting Rome. And Rome just came in and wiped them out. And, it, and the city basically was empty and desolate for about a hundred years. But then Rome had a problem. The problem was that they had... They had taken all of these lower class people, put them in the army, given them some success in the army, and now they were kind of, they, to, the, to the upper classes in Rome, they seemed a little bit uppity. You know, they weren't satisfied with their previous position in Roman society. And, and many of them had been slaves, were now set free. So Rome had this swelling population of freed people who were, who were looking to climb the social ladder, and they didn't want that in Rome. And so what they decided to do was take provinces in the Roman Empire, and populate them with these freed people or, or military veterans. And they had this great city of Corinth that was just far enough removed from, the Rome, from Rome and the Italian mainland that they figured that's a great place to put them. So they put a bunch of people there and refounded the city. And what this meant was that unlike in most everywhere else in the ancient world, in Corinth, there wasn't this really rigid hierarchy of where you fell on the social ladder. In most places in the ancient world, you had people who had money, aristocracy, were born into it by their family, and you had people who didn't. There was no middle class like we have in America. It was either or, haves and have nots. But Corinth was kind of like a new world, a world that didn't have aristocracy, it didn't have upper or lower classes. It was a lot like the Americas that were, that, as they came under the influence of Europe, a place where you could kind of go and make your own mark for good or ill. Corinth became a place for people to reinvent themselves, an opportunity to climb their ladder. And what helped them on this was where Corinth sat. I, I wish I had a, 
This will be one of the only times that I would be in favor of having PowerPoint in here. Uh, if I had PowerPoint, what I would do is, is put a big map of the ancient world, of the ancient Roman Empire up here, and show you. If you've got a study Bible, you might want to flip to it. I'm sure you have a map. Corinth sits on this tiny little land bridge between two big sections of the Mediterranean Sea. One of them led to Asia. One of them led to the Italian mainland and the rest of, of Europe. And so right there, in that middle section, was a major trade route. It came right through Corinth. So there was money to be made. Immediately after being founded, it took off. Its economy took off. So not only was it fresh and all these opportunities for self-advancement, but there was money there. And so what happened, what took place in the culture, was that it became fluid, wealth-driven, materialistic, status, and power-obsessed. These things were up for grabs, and everybody wanted them. As one historian that I read put it, it seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. When you don't inherit these things, then you tend to be obsessed with making these things. Everyone there concerned to build an image with money, with knowledge, with honor, with powerful connections that could help you out with the protection of your rights. That's what, that's what Corinth was like. That's what Paul has in his mind when he writes to the church of God that was in Corinth. Paul writes, though, that this church of God in Corinth has been sanctified, which is a word for made holy, has been separated out in Christ Jesus and put into a new world. Paul reminds him that they had been set apart, not normal in their setting. They're supposed to be in Corinth, obviously. Stay put. You're in the world, but not of it. Not normal meant that among them they weren't supposed to be obsessed with prestige, with their superiority, with advancement. But the next line in his greeting points to the fact that they had gotten into everything that defined Corinth's culture. That so much of Corinth, maybe a better way to put that actually, is that too much of Corinth had gotten into them. The next line in Paul's greeting is that not only are you sanctified in Christ Jesus, but you're called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you didn't stumble on that or, or stop and think about it, but he's, he starts out saying basically the same thing as what he's just said. You're sanctified in Christ Jesus, and you're called to be saints. Same exact thing. So what's the point of this next line? It's that you're called to be saints together with everybody anywhere who has called on the name of Jesus. What he's saying is that you have more in common with everybody else anywhere in the world who owns the name of Jesus, than you have in common with Corinth and its power structures. And yet, what we're going to find out as the, as the letter goes on is that inside their community, they were all about the same things that Corinth was about, about making a name for themselves, about establishing their reputation, about one, getting a, a one-upmanship sort of over everybody else. So they were all about divisions among themselves, missing the fact that they were called to be saints with anyone everywhere who owns Jesus. And, and, and in that, they were starting to look exactly like Corinth. They'd gotten it backwards. They'd imported the same obsession with status and power and self-advancement from their culture into their church. And they had forgotten that in Jesus, all are equal. They'd started using their church and the gifts that God had given them as just another avenue for building their own brand. 
church had become about them. Now, one of the ways this book is going to help us is in clarifying the ways that we can be, we today in Nashville can be more like the culture in which we live than like the community of those who are set apart by God's grace. I've said before, the church is meant, according to the New Testament, the church is, is put here to be a sort of pilot project or model home for the, for the community that is coming, that's going to stretch across the entire world in the new heavens and the new earth. We're put here for that. But every church that has ever existed anywhere has been embedded in a particular time and in a particular place and every particular time and every particular place has had things about it that stand over against in opposition to what a community that's founded on the gospel is supposed to look like. And what we, are ask, we, are, we as a community are asking for it if we don't pay real close attention to how we might be importing the values of our culture into our community rather than letting the, the truths of God's gospel stand in judgment over us and call us to be something different, something that's not normal. 1 Corinthians is a letter full of examples of how this can happen. And as we go through those examples one by one, we're going to be asking ourselves, where is, it, where is it true for us that there's too much of Nashville or too much of the United States of America or too much of the Western world in the 21st century in us and too little of a community marked by Jesus' cross? Ultimately, one of the things that makes this book so, so useful to us is that 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians issues were, I think, the same as the ones that we tend to import from our culture into our communities. Because we're living in the midst of the most individualistic culture that the world has ever seen. That is not an overstatement. In the West, we are born and bred to prioritize our own interests above anything else. We are taught to affirm ourselves whatever we want. We are taught to expect the same attention to our needs from other people that we have ourselves. We are taught, in other words, to live as if we aren't satisfied in Jesus, so fully satisfied in him that we can give ourselves away to each other. Everything about what comes natural in our culture pushes against the self-emptying, God-exalting, Christ-glorifying picture of community that's coming at us in 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to, with the Corinthians, sit under Paul's insights and pray that God will work them into us. It's a letter about holiness. It's also a letter about grace. What we're going to see, what Paul really introduces to us, even in this, in this passage, is that the reason the Corinthians weren't holy, set apart, not normal, was that they failed to internalize what it means that you're saved only and always by the grace of God, not by anything that has to do with you. The gifts that we have and anything good that's in us is not about us, but it's about God and his Christ. I think in the next section, this Thanksgiving section that starts in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul points out what's missing in, in the sort of self-awareness of the Corinthians, what they were failing to see in themselves. He points out what it is they haven't connected with that's keeping them from the holiness that they're supposed to reflect. And it's the fact of God's grace in their lives, especially in the cross of Jesus. Now, He's going to come back to this over and over and over again. 
Every time a new issue comes up that he's heard about that now he's going to address himself to, he points him to the cross. The cross is the solution for it. And we get, that, we get a hint towards that here in the, in the Thanksgiving prayer. I want to point you there in these verses, and then I'm going to come back and talk about it in a little bit more detail. It's in his Thanksgiving for the Corinthians, he points out a lot of things that are good in them. I mean, remarkably, as messed up as they are, if you're just reading so far in the letter and you don't know what's coming, it looks like Paul's really happy with this church. It's an, it's an incredibly gracious thing for him to praise them or to, 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 to acknowledge good things that are in them. But what you're going to see as we work through this is that he never allows them to take credit for what's good in them. That every time he points out something he's thankful for, the one that he's thanking is not the Corinthians, but God who gave them this gift. Look at verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks to God always for you because, and here's where it could get tricky, right? You're thinking, if you start listing off their qualities, aren't you just going to be feeding their self-absorption? But that's not what he does at all. I give great, thanks to God for you, and what I'm thankful about you is the grace of God that's given to you in Jesus. Then he gets even more specific in verse 5. Why I'm, what I'm thankful for in you is the grace of God that has given you specifically speech and knowledge, the ability to communicate well to each other, knowledge of doctrine, the ability to, to, to understand the beauty of the gospel, at least on a mental or intellectual level. But notice what he's doing. You're enriched in him in speech and knowledge. Most people point out that these are, these are gifts that Paul's mentioning here because they're the ones that Corinthians were using to brag about themselves and how good they were. That they were kind of making a pecking order in their community over who had the better knowledge or who had better speech, whose gifts, they were kind of ranking the gifts and establishing themselves on that basis. Paul here goes with those gifts that they were so proud of. He says, yeah, you do have those things, but they came from God, they're not from you. Continues it on in verse, verse 7. You don't lack anything that you need to be a full and flourishing community while you wait for Jesus to come back. And verse 8 says, not only do you have everything you need now by God's grace, but God himself is going to sustain you to the end. Everything you need to, to hold on in your faith and to ultimately get the reward that's coming to you is given to you by God. So you don't get to take credit for anything now or in the future. He will make you blameless. Ultimately, verse 9 summarizes it. Paul can write to, him, write to them with confidence in spite of all their problems because he knows that their fate doesn't rest on them and their ability, but on the faithfulness of God. Verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Can you see what's going on here? What we're going to see in, in, future, in future sermons when we work through the letter is that these Corinthians were obsessed with their gifts and they were using them in their own attempts to gain status and recognition. But they were missing the point. They were like the 16-year-old kid who's never worked a day in his life who gets a Camaro for his birthday and thinks he's better than the kid who's still riding his bike, right? As if that kid's gift that he did nothing to earn makes him better than someone who didn't receive those gifts. Paul's not going to let him get away with it. What they have, what we have, comes from God. Anything good in us. And it says more about God than it says about us. And so what, sitting under this message, we're going to be convicted, along with Paul's readers, 
of any attempt to make ourselves superior to others. I think what, what I'm going to be praying for myself and for all of us as we work our way through the letter is that God will expose us for anything that we use in ourselves to make us look down on other people. That could be your religion. That's kind of what it was here. You feel like you, you are more faithful to the model of life that the New Testament gives us than the people that are around you. But it doesn't have to be religious. We feel superior about all kinds of things. We can feel superior about appearances sometimes or about money, like the Corinthians felt. We can feel superior about our parenting choices. We can feel superior about our education, about our ideas. There's really basically nothing that we like about ourselves that we don't often bolster by comparing ourselves to people who don't have that quality. I don't know what it is for you, but you're deceiving yourself if you don't think you've got any. And what this letter is going to give us a chance to do is to expose to the light these areas in ourselves where we compare ourselves to other people. And this letter is going to call us to remember that anything good in us, if it is actually good to begin with, is only in us because God has given it to us. It's going to check our pride. But on the other side, this letter is going to encourage us. Because once we've seen that we have nothing good in ourselves, one of the tendencies we might have is to, is to sort of become obsessed with how little we have. Sort of hate ourselves. And Paul's letter is not going to give us any room for that. Because the fact that we don't have anything good on our own doesn't negate that God has given us a new identity in Jesus that is everything we need to be secure and stable and happy in our lives. He's not going to let us give in, in other words, to, to obsession with how awful we are. He will, he's going to thread that needle between pride over the good things in us and despair over the lack of any good thing in us by saying, you are not the point. The point is who you are in Jesus, and he is the point. Now, I've said already that it's all about God's grace. This, this letter's going to make this point over and over again that anything good in us is about God and not, therefore, to be put to any kind of use to, for setting ourselves over against each other. But we can actually take it one step more specific. This, this, this opening passage points us there that the most concrete example of God's grace to us is the cross of Jesus. So this letter is not just about God's grace in the abstract. It's about how God's grace changes us through what Jesus has done. Now look back through this this Thanksgiving prayer again. What does he say? I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Next verse. In every way you were enriched in him. That's Christ Jesus again. Verse 6. Even as testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 9, God has called you into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is everywhere. He's all over it. God's grace to us, his ultimate gift to us is Jesus. And that is shorthand for Jesus' cross. What God has given us is a blamelessness that comes by the sacrifice of somebody else. A new identity that comes by the performance of somebody else for us, something we don't have to earn. And Paul, every single time he addresses an issue, goes back to the cross. So here's what this letter is going to give us a chance to do. 
it's going to give us a chance to get real concrete on how the message of the gospel changes real life. And one of the things we talk about a lot here is that the gospel is not just an idea, but it, it, it brings about a lifestyle. It actually does change us. That it's a kind of belief that shapes how we see everything else in our world. And if, if that's a new set of language for you, even if that language is familiar to you, actually, I think all of us have a hard time seeing how it's true. It stays a little bit abstract. There's a couple different kind, ways of knowing something, right? I know a lot of facts, for example, about the American Revolution, kind of when and why it started, how it went, what came after it. But those facts rarely ever have any bearing on my marriage or on the way that I parent my children. I think a lot of times the claims of the gospel are put into that category of fact for us, even if we don't want to. They're a lot more like the American Revolution. It's hard to make this jump from Jesus dying on the cross, taking a penalty that we owe for our sin, and our marriages or our relationships in general or what we do at work every day. But we will only grow in holiness. We're only going to overcome our self-centeredness as we start to see that these beliefs about Jesus and what he's done for us are, are what you might call self-involving beliefs. To believe them and really get them is to be changed by them. There's another example. To hear that somebody that you went to high school with is about to have a baby is one kind of fact, right? It's one kind of knowledge. To hear that you're pregnant and you're going to have a baby is a different kind of knowledge, right? It's a self-involving belief. It now changes everything about the rest of your the rest of your world. It's all kind of seen through that lens. And the gospel's message is more like the latter than like the former. And if that's still abstract for you, I'm going to ask you to put a pin in it because the rest of this series is going to be about showing you how that's true. Because every time Paul confronts them in a problem, he points them to Jesus. And it is gloriously practical. And here's the last thing I want to say this morning. This is a letter about love. It's a letter about love. Healthy churches are marked by holiness. They're not normal. They live with each other in a way that's different from the culture that they're, that they're part of. And their holiness hinges on their ability to connect with God's grace, especially God's grace in Jesus. And when they do connect with God's grace, especially God's grace in Jesus, the primary marker of their connection to that truth and of the fact that that truth is starting to change them. The primary marker of that is their love for one another. Now, the word love doesn't come up in this verse. Maybe you notice, if you're, if you're following along with me in my outline that's in the worship guide, I don't have a verse that's attached to this one. I promise that's not because I'm just reading it in there. It's actually in there by its absence. And here's what I mean. Remember I said at the beginning that that, um, that these greetings that Paul puts at the beginning of his letters are kind of a standard form that starts out letters all through the ancient world, and that the key sometimes to knowing where Paul's going to go is to see how he tweaks it, the changes that he makes. This is especially true here. So if you compare the beginning of Corinthians with the beginning of, say, Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, in each of those letters, Paul begins with a, a similar thanksgiving. And in each of those letters... One of the main things, one of the first things that he thanks God for is their love for all the saints. 
He's thankful that God's love has begun to change them so that they love everyone else. Now look back at this Thanksgiving. What, is the, what does he thank God for? He thanks God for his gifts to them, for speech and knowledge, for the fact that he's confident God is going to hold them to the end despite their flaws, for the fact that God is faithful, but love is not there. Love is noticeably absent. This church didn't have a problem with doctrine. Some some of the churches Paul wrote to had a problem with doctrine. He had to write to correct them for some things they were thinking that weren't true. Not this one. The problem with this church is that they had not internalized the truths that they had learned in their heads. They had not worked themselves into their lives so it changed them. It hadn't changed their desires. It hadn't changed their ambitions or their self-awareness. They weren't holy. They weren't set apart from the normal in their city because they hadn't connected with God's grace in their heart. The New Testament is consistent. That behavior, a change in the way you live, is always rooted in your heart, in what your heart loves, what it wants, what it desires. And they hadn't changed in their behavior because their ideas had not worked down to their hearts. But when their ideas, when the ideas of what God has done for us begin to change who we are on the inside, when they begin to renovate us, our behavior starts to change. And when the cross becomes the most important shaping force on our lives, what it looks like when it shows up is an unnormal, unnatural, holy love for each other. Say it again. What we're going to see is that the Corinthians had missed the point of their gifts. They treated their churches as a place for getting what they needed, for being recognized for what they offer, for, for gaining self-advancement in all of its forms. They had put their gifts, in other words, to use for self-serving purposes. They had even beat each other up with their gifts. Some examples that we're going to show. And this is what Paul is getting at in one of the most famous passages in our letter. 1 Corinthians 13. It, chances are, if you're familiar with anything in 1 Corinthians, you're familiar with chapter 13, the love chapter. Think about chapter 13 as Paul's sort of capstone on what it will look like if you really start to understand and internalize the message of the cross. In that chapter, what he says is that all of your gifts, all of them, if you don't have love, are nothing more than a noisy gong or clanging cymbal that just keeps going on and on and on. It's annoying. It's overpowering. It's antisocial. Your gifts, Paul's going to argue, aren't about you. They're about the God who gave them to you in his grace. And your gifts are about the community for whose good God gave you your gifts. And when you start to get that, what starts to mark you off is your love for each other. Ultimately, Paul's going to make a point Jesus made in his ministry. Jesus told his disciples that people are going to know you're with me by the way that you love one another. Another way to put it is that our love is what primarily marks us as holy, as not normal. So here I think we, get, we bring, bring back around full circle to where we started this morning. Holiness is what the church is called to. A, a community that just doesn't look like the values of the rest of the world. And that's what's missing in Corinth and often missing in us. And the reason we're not as holy as we need to be is that we've misunderstood God's grace. 
especially his grace to us in Jesus. And if we can come to understand God's grace, then what it's going to do in us is give us a love for each other that is remarkably holy, that sets us apart from everything else. Verse 30 of chapter 1, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks, I think is a great summary. It says, Because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's because of Jesus that we are who we are. And another way to say that is that all we have is Jesus. And when all we have is Jesus, then all we have is the same thing that everyone else who calls on his name has. We have no reason for setting ourselves up against each other. And what that means, when all you have is Christ, this perfect gift that leaves no lack, you are free to give yourself away completely, sacrificially, not normally, to each other. And this is what bonds us together in the fellowship of God's Son. Father, We want this community, but we can't create it on our own. We know it from experience. And yet in us is this resilient self-confidence. Sometimes what we know in one way, we fail to live as if it's true. And so as we come to this letter for the next few months, our prayer is twofold. We pray first that you would continue to expose us for whatever false trust in ourselves is still in us. We want it out of there. We want hearts that are new, fresh and clean, and centered on Jesus and not on ourselves. And in place of our self-absorption, what we pray for is a a glorious and all-satisfying confidence in the cross. A confidence that will mark us off in Nashville, in our city, as a community of people who don't make any sense in the way that they treat each other, who treat each other in a way that is holy. We know that you can do it. And our confidence in that is the same as Paul's confidence was in writing to his friends in Corinth. We're confident only because God is faithful. And it is by you that we've been called, not by our own ability or our own insight, our own resolve, we've been called by the faithful God of the universe into the fellowship of Jesus. And you don't do things half-heartedly. You finish what you start. And we pray that you would use our study together to work us closer to the image of Jesus for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.